This is Eddie Yoon, author of Super Consumers, a simple, speedy, and sustainable path to superior growth, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just a few minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. You can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to it at MarketingBookPodcast.com. I'll have more on Blinkist in a few minutes. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Eddie Yoon to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Eddie Yoon is the founder of Eddie Would Grow and is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on growth strategy. He's the author of over 40 Harvard Business Review articles and has been a keynote speaker around the world. Prior to starting Eddie Would Grow, he was a partner at the Cambridge Group a strategy consulting firm that helped CEOs and senior leadership teams of Fortune 1000 corporations drive growth by understanding how to unlock new sources of consumer demand. And interesting facts, he attended the same high school in Hawaii as former U.S. President Barack Obama, and he now lives in Barack Obama's adopted hometown of Chicago. Eddie, congratulations on Super Consumers, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much, Douglas. I have to say that with Obama and we have a senator from Hawaii from our high school. And so we just need a, a Supreme Court justice and we'll hit the government bingo lotto there. Yes, yes. There's, I looked through there. There's actually some uh, you know other famous uh, notable alumni. But Eddie, we've got to address the elephant in the room here. When will you be announcing your candidacy for the presidency of the United States? <laughs> you know, the office that I would actually consider running for would be the benevolent dictator of Hawaii when we secede from the union. Like that's that's kind of my ultimate goal. But oh, we wow. can't talk about that. You'll have to edit this out of the podcast because it's a secret goal. But oh, that, okay. that's my that's my uh, beautiful uh, vision of we want to be still part of the United States and have the military presence, but uh, you know, kind of run things the way that we want to do it and uh -huh. stuff. So. Well, I think we could also change it to um, Eddie-topia. <laughs> it's or, not about me. It's about everybody <laughs> right. else. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. So uh, when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, uh, like I am, uh, you know, book nerd, uh, the first thing I do is I go to the acknowledgments of a book <laughs> before I read it to see if there's <laughs> any names I recognize. And I was uh, reminded that the editor of your book uh, was Daniel McGinn, who is a senior editor at the Harvard Business Review, and he is also the author of Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed, and he was a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Yes, indeed. It's a small world, and Dan wrote a great book, so I was uh, thrilled to see that you guys got a chance to connect before. Yeah, and he, uh, he strongly... Uh, recommended it, and he said, "Not just because I was the editor, but <laughs> you've got to have him on the show." So, I'm so very kind of Dan. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad we were able to to connect, and you had very kind words for him as well. Hey, before we get started, could you tell us the story of the derivation of your uh, company's name, Eddie Would Grow? 
Sure, sure. So I was born and raised in Hawaii, as you had mentioned before about my high school. And uh, there's a famous waterman, big wave surfer, lifeguard by the name of Eddie Aikau. There was actually an ESPN 30 for 30 written about him. And uh, he was famous for not only his courage in tackling these huge waves of an, as a surfer, but um, he was part of uh, the original Hokulea, which is, if you've seen the movie Moana, like the ancient Hawaiians, kind of uh, their celestial navigation. So he was on a tour that replicated that for the first time in uh, about 20 some odd years ago. And um, they had some trouble uh, offshore and the, the, the canoe capsized and he went for help and they never saw him again. So he's actually quite famous in Hawaii. Um, and with the catchphrase, Eddie would go, like you see it on bumper stickers, there's t-shirts that come out all the time. And it's really kind of this, uh, symbol of courage and generosity and excellence. And part of when I wanted to leave the Cambridge group to do my own thing here, was he was really kind of the inspiration for that. I think of how I wanted to run uh, my enterprise, but also it, the kind of ideas that I was excited about, about courage and generosity and creating new categories and growing categories in a way that lifts all boats, but your boat in particular. And so it really resonated with me. And I figured, you know, we didn't need another kind of advisory firm out there named after myself or their own person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I suppose it really resonates with the folks back in Hawaii who know that expression. Yes, yes, and it's it's uh, hopefully easy to remember, even if you don't. At least it sparks a question like you just asked. So Yeah, yeah. So let me just start with one excerpt from the beginning of the book. This is the essence of what I call a super consumer strategy. Find, listen to, and engage with your most passionate customers. Understand their tastes, emotions, and behaviors. Lean into the aspects that also resonate with a much larger group of potential super consumers, and then tailor your decision-making, coordinate and concentrate your cross-functional investments, and innovate both your product and your business model to give these consumers what they want and need. The strategy may seem obvious, but in my experience of helping companies with their growth strategies, I've seen few managers take this approach to its fullest extent. So, Eddie, tell us the story of how this book came to be and why you wrote it. Yeah, I um, I wrote this book um, largely because I started to see patterns. And I, if I'm honest, I'll trace it back to um, about a third of the way through my career before I was a partner. Um, I had this experience where I got called into the office of a client um, and who proceeded to kind of kind of yell at me for making a recommendation that didn't work. And uh, now, truth be told, we made a number of recommendations that work for other parts of the business, but his particular business, I had made a recommendation for, and they lost money and it was, it just didn't work out. And he was embarrassed by it. And he wanted me to feel bad about it, which I did. And I thought I contemplated, should I uh, quit my job? Was anything that I did worthwhile? And it led me to kind of a moment of introspection of, you know what, um, I should go back and kind of calculate my batting average for every single project that I've ever done uh, and see what did I learn? What did I recommend? Did they do anything about it? And did the client make money as a result of it? And what I concluded was that kind of in aggregate, uh, my clients had made far much more than they had paid us as a consulting firm. So that felt good. But then when I looked at the actual batting average, about it was one in three. So if I was playing baseball it was great, but only one in three projects had a real tangible result. But the thought that um, really kind of struck me was that it wasn't for a lack of there was something cool that we had learned. Um, that epiphany uh, kind of happened in every situation, nor was it a function of uh, what we recommended necessarily, but it was a function of a lot of other things that had that were kind of around the project that made me think like, huh, there are things that I can't control, but there are things that are more in my control than I realized that if I were more thoughtful about not just answering the question that they had posed to me, that I would up the odds of the client having real impacting success. And so that kind of like, you know, a little bit of a humbling moment and a desire to do better uh, and, and kind of feel good about uh, what I was doing with my job and my career led me to kind of 
continue to explore what was working, what wasn't. And that's when I started to see the same patterns kind of emerge, which was, you know, um, not every consumer is the same. And there's a small set of people who generate the lion's share of not just profits in the category, and but the passion and the emotion in the category that's there. There's about two to three X the number of people who are like them in passion, but not yet spending as much. And so my wife is a big scrapbooker, as you'll, you've read in the book. And mm-hmm. there's lots of people who want to kind of do crafts and arts like she does, but they're afraid to, and so they don't. And so the real question becomes, how do you find somebody who is a super consumer, uh, connect them with someone who wants to be a super consumer and use that kind of, call it about a third of the population to really grow the category. And so I just kept seeing this over and over again. And what occurred to me was, you know, growth is actually a lot simpler than people are making it, that even I am making it. And that uh, the super consumer, this phenomenon seems to exist in every category that I've worked in, B2B, B2C, around the world. And if that's the case, then surely the truth is that any company can grow, no matter what the circumstances are or what the situation is. And that if you just had this playbook, which is a lot simpler than people realize, then let's kind of see what happens there. So that that was really kind of the inspiration was out of my abject humiliation and my desire to do better came in kind of epiphany that this was a lot simpler and that the joy of growth could be experienced by a lot more people than I could personally serve if I put pen to paper. A good reminder that through pain, suffering, and adversity, good things can come. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you started to touch on it, but uh, when somebody says, uh, oh, uh, they they first hear the term super consumer, explain a little bit more about what is a super consumer and uh, what are some of the characteristics of these these people? Yeah. So the... Uh, super consumer construct is, as you know, from the marketing podcast, there's a lot of people out there with different kind of uh, analyses and frameworks that they do with consumers. You know, maybe they'll say millennials or they'll do a psychographic thing or whatnot. And kind of what I've discovered over the years is that the simpler you can make it, the better. And that if I could take any data set and just looked at people who spent a lot and cared a lot about the category, not about a brand or a product or a business, but the category overall, that that was plenty good of a North Star to actually do quite a bit of work with. And that what, what's interesting is that the more complex um, kind of you know, the way that people looked at consumers, the harder it was to actually apply to your data or to run your business because you know, it was, you have to go through a 21 step algorithm to actually figure out who this person is, or it was so basic, like, Hey, let's go after millennials. Never mind that millennials are the most diverse generation (laughs) ever in the world. And that the notion of we're going to go after a cohort and treat them all the same. I think that was just really, I I guess, offensive in some way, right? Because at a very personal level, I, I look at the world as like, it's, you would be kind of slapped upside the head if you walked around and said everyone is the same and that you know there's no cultural nuances and whatnot. And yet so many businesses kind of run themselves as if everybody is almost exactly the same in terms of economic value and emotional value and insight. And that that's what I'm kind of really just fighting against is this notion of you can kind of do a one size fits all strategy because that's that's part of the beauty of the super consumer thing is that when it's simple, you can apply it on more data. When it's simple, it kind of lives beyond the marketing function that salespeople are like, oh, this is kind of an idea that I understand. And even product development people, product development people is exactly it, right? Because you have, I've met so many R&D people who are just kind of like, they have this little bit of like um, uh, the Charlie Brown, Lucy phenomenon of like, well, maybe marketing will ask for my input, but they never really take me seriously or my ideas that I really am excited about, they don't want to do anything with. But the super consumer construct is so easy for anyone to get and to kind of take advantage of that it allows people to speak the same language. And just like how Six Sigma kind of has worked across on the operation side that the notion of a super consumer is one that works beautifully cross-functionally. Okay, so let me ask you a few other questions about super consumer to help the listeners start to wrap their mind around that. What's the difference then between a super consumer and a heavy user? Yeah, so the emotion component is the real difference maker. And and I, I think that's number one. And the number two is that most people that I run into, they define a heavy user 
too narrowly. They, t- they say it's a heavy user of my product or my brand versus a heavy user of the category writ large. So I'll, I'll tackle the first one. And, you know, one of my former colleagues used to talk about like, you have people who are super consumers of sliced bread as an example, or they, they appear to be super consumers of a sliced bread, but they're really just heavy users in that they have a lot of teenagers at home. And if you ask them, do you care about sliced white bread or wheat bread? They say, no, I could give her a you know, rip about it because it's not really that important to me, but I do it because it's kind of what's going on in my life right now. You ask those people what would need to be true for you to pay twice as much of a higher price for that bread, they'd laugh at you. Mm-hmm. Or if you ask them how to make it better, they'd say, I don't know, make it more convenient for me to buy. And that's a very different response than you'd get from somebody who is completely passionate about it and really into it in a way that seems very geeky and nerd-like, um, who would say, you know what, I'm not actually wanting to pay twice as much, but if you changed X, Y, and Z, that would be worthwhile and justify a price premium that I would do. Mm-hmm. As an example would be like uh, also from the book uh, about this this cheese company you talked about. Yes. Maybe you could walk through that. Yeah, yeah. So, so th- this is uh, one of my favorite examples. Is that this this idea of there are people who buy a lot of cheese, and it could be because they have a larger family. It could be because um, you know they're they're just consuming certain foods that kind of go down that route. But uh, this cheese super consumer was for a product that was it wasn't fancy cheese, it wasn't kind of your natural or an organic cheese, but it was this shelf stable cheese that you primarily use to melt to make dips and whatnot, in that um, we were kind of shocked initially and a lot of myth busting had to happen to prove out that these super consumers would exist because at face value, you could be proud of yourself if you said, I'm a fancy French cheese eater or, you know, I'm an organic cheese eater, but not this particular product. People weren't you thought weren't proud of it, but we turns out we found people who were, they bought a lot of it and they were quite proud of it. And it wasn't because they were having lots of Super Bowl parties or they had humongous families or they just kind of, you know, ate dips all year round. It was really people who had said, you know what, uh, I buy, you know, four to six times the amount of this particular cheese category as other people do because I have figured out other uses for it, kind of like MacGyver, where they're like, look, I can use it as so many different ways to make my life better. And in particular, the use case that they were using it for was getting their kids to eat vegetables. And this was the really kind of brilliant insight that we got to, which was, you know, my kids won't eat vegetables. Um, They would if I put some cheese on it, but I put shredded cheese on a broccoli stalk and it falls all over the place and it's really messy. And putting a uh, a slice of cheese on it doesn't really work either. But taking this particular cheese and melting it down and pouring it onto the vegetables. And what they found was that the broccoli stalk kind of is infused with this melted cheese in a way that completely changes the eating experience. But more importantly, it made the kids eat vegetables. And so this became the aha that you could only get from somebody who was buying a lot of it, but was emotionally not ashamed of it for one, but proud of the fact of how they had used it to make their lives better. And what we found was that, you know, you ask the number of people, how many of you want this particular cheese category? Not many hands go up. But if you ask, how many of you would like to get your kids to eat more vegetables and you need a Trojan horse to figure out how to do that, far more hands go up for that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a far more relatable product that, again, uh, only through the eyes of somebody who's actually loves this category and spends a lot of it, would you be able to see that kind of right turn there? Yes. And as if I understood it correctly in the book, there were some clients, the, the people that worked at the cheese company who had never actually eaten this cheese. Did I get that yeah, right? That's, 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 um, that is correct. And it's actually, um, I, that's, that's a shame and I, I can't believe it, but I guess I'm not surprised. Yeah. You know, it, it I, I'm sure you've seen this a lot, Douglas. And, and, and I think, you know, people make a big to do about like why a lot of these mom and pop companies and brands are doing well against the big companies and, and whatnot. But I think a lot of it has just come, you know, with income inequality around the world, that the more senior you are as an executive, the more money you make and the less likely it is you are to consume an everyday product. And, you know, this disparity, I think, is a really big problem because what, to your point, not only uh, take this company aside, not only have I seen companies who run by uh, executives and leaders who don't consume their product, there are even some that have disdain. 
and discover what they do. And they'll say like, man, I wouldn't give this to my kids or I wouldn't give buy this for my family. And you're like, well, why are you in the business at all? Right. And this kind of separation of super consumers actually running the companies themselves is at some level, one of the root causes that I see of businesses that are struggling to grow. Well, you know, that's interesting. You talked about that. I, I want to ask you then to explain the importance of what you call calibrating your contempt for your consumers. I'd never heard of a concept like that, but yet I've sat on the other side of a two-way mirror focus group and heard yep. clients you know, making fun of the people in the focus groups. Uh, that, that was not a good sign. What, what yeah. do you mean when you talk about calibrating your contempt and why it's important to do that? Yeah, it, it's it's something I, I think contempt is something that I've seen. So I, I've been doing growth strategy for about you know 20 years and I've seen lots of clients. And one of the things that I discovered or what I realized about contempt is that it's a little bit like the carbon monoxide emotion in that you can't really smell it or tell that it's there. And it's really hard to self-diagnose. But um, eventually it'll kill you and your business. This is kind of the big concern that I, that I see out there and that it's, it, it certainly is the situation what I, as exactly as you said, Douglas, of like people making fun of consumers. But whenever somebody says, I need to make my quarterly number and in order to make it, uh, I'm going to take a little bit of quality out of the product or I'm going to resize it a little bit smaller, not change the price. Right. But I'm, I'm basically making a profit somehow by taking down the product in a better you know in a worse way that I believe the consumer won't notice I think that's an act of contempt that you think the consumer is stupid enough to not notice or care um, down to you know and, and this is the you know call it the the frog in the boiling pot syndrome or whatnot but yes. like whenever you see people who are like you know what I just need to you know spend more money on marketing eg you know, I just need to yell louder at the consumer and then they'll buy my thing, or I need to discount it a little bit more that all of these strategies, while they're, they're important tactics to have in your toolkit, but you know, it's the crack pipe of a lot of these companies where they get addicted to it and they don't realize that at the core, what they're really saying is that I don't believe my product's any good. I don't believe my consumer's all that smart or that um, important and that my number to my, my CFO or to Wall Street matters more than not. Now, that's a harsh way of saying it, but it's a little bit of this kind of syndrome of taking people for granted, I think is at the core of what it is mm -hmm. versus because um, like when I when I've talked about super consumers, what the telltale sign that I say is like, well, those people. Uh, there are weirdos and th th that that weird word is another word that I just can't I can't stand it right because it's like you can say that's different that's strange or that's odd but when people dismiss these super consumers as weird anomalous then to me it's just a, it's a contemptuous statement and it's a sign that the business is not headed for good things because unless you are the cheapest version of your uh, category out there you won't grow in the long run. Mm. Very well said. And uh, it's a similar, uh, you know, that, that approach to the consumers is like carbon monoxide, but you can also sense it in an organization through other uh, things that are going on with the management. So anyway, yeah. uh, on that down note, let me remind the listener that uh, <laughs> I think you said super consumers make up about a third of, of consumers in a market, but yet they drive perhaps 70% of the profit. Yeah, it's, it's, um, so the, the actual analysis that I've done and I, part of my old firm was part of Nielsen and I had access to a lot of great big data there. And so the interesting thing for me is this notion of, um, about 10% of the category consumers uh, roughly qualify as a true super consumer. They spend a lot and they care a lot. Now the 30% number comes from an interesting phenomenon of, there are other people who feel the same kind of emotion as a super consumer, but they're not yet spending. And those two groups together end up being about 30%. And what I find is that um, 
that group uh, collectively, not only are they incredibly important to the category, like the top 10% is anywhere from 30 to 70% of category sales, even higher category profit because they're not just buying it on uh, on a discount, uh, but they have kind of 99% of the insights for how the category can grow. But that remaining 20% um, is actually the key to making the pie bigger. And this is a big, big part of my growth philosophy is that um, nine out of 10 companies that I run into, um, their, their fundamental strategy is competition. It's, it's pie splitting. It's, you know, hey, Douglas, you and I are both in the, the bottled water business. And for you to grow, you have to take from me mm-hmm. by, you know, outspending me or discounting my price. And I, I fight back. And what ends up happening there is that the industry profit goes to zero because we're just duking it over, over a smaller and smaller crumbs versus uh, a category growth philosophy of, you know what, the best way for me to grow is to actually make the pie bigger for everybody. And the only way to do that is through understanding exactly that kind of the acronym that I call it is the fuel acronym, the find, understand, engage, and, and leverage these super consumers to basically infect other people to become like them. Mm-hmm. And that's how you're actually going to make the pie bigger. And my research has shown that 1% of the brands in a category capture 80% of category growth. So it's actually a really good growth strategy too. Mm-hmm. So let's walk through that fuel because you're obviously reading everything on my screen here. Oh. <laughs> you're answering all the questions. This is the easiest interview I've ever done. Um, but uh, so let's let's talk about it. So you said there there are uh, three growth strategy types. That one is the stealing share, or you call it yep. pie splitting, and um, then there is the uh, expanding the category. Yep. And eighty percent of the category growth is captured by one percent of the brands. Um, but the ultimate growth strategy is creating a new category. Yes. So can you explain the concept of the category creator and how super consumers can play such a big role in that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, category creation is my favorite, favorite uh, growth strategy. And it's, it's actually the one that's employed the least by very large companies and but it's the one that's employed the most by entrepreneurs and startups. So you can kind of see, you know, it partially explains kind of where where the world is headed with it. But category creation is not in my mind, um, creating a new element on the periodic table, but really what it is, is combining product innovation or whatever you offer service innovation with business model innovation. And And I'll give you an example of that. Um, but my 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 research has shown that those companies they grow revenues four times faster and their stock prices grow six times faster than comparable companies. So it, it's it's an extraordinarily valuable strategy. And uh, the example that I give is that like the coffee category has had loads of category creators, you know, from Starbucks to Nespresso to Keurig into some of these companies out there like Verve that are the quote unquote third wave of coffee where they're charging like 20 bucks per cup of coffee out there. And it's these amazing businesses exist. And, and one would imagine that um, cate- uh, coffee consumption has exploded. But the reality is, is that per capita consumption of coffee in the last 50 years has been cut in half. And that's my, my, one of my most kind of perplexing stats that I like to throw out there is that, um, you know, everyone knows about Starbucks and what they've done, the Keurig model, kind of a similar kind of category creating, uh, where they not just created a device, but an ecosystem of pods and K cups that you can use to choose from a variety of brands. But like this notion of, they didn't just make the coffee better in some way, shape or form, better tasting, better quality, more convenient, more choice. But in all of these situations, they, they changed the way that they made money from the business. And so the, uh, going back to Starbucks, the, I, I wrote an article in HBR about how uh, Starbucks is actually becoming very much a bank. And in, in, so I don't know if Douglas, you have the Starbucks app or, you know, people who yes, have the I Starbucks. Do. Oh, great. So in, 2013, um, and I think it's still the case recently, but uh, about a billion and a half dollars of cash was loaded in one quarter on the Starbucks app. And if you think about it, you put your CFO hat <laughs> Some on. Some of that's my money, yeah. That's your money. <laughs> and it's, it's not really just your money. It is an interest-free loan you are giving to Starbucks. And the reason why that's important is that at one point in time, about 8% of their total company profit came from the float of managing that free interest-free loan that consumers have given them. 
right? And so you think about that strategy and, you know, cause like, I, I think the, the rewards program, you know, it's a fine rewards program, nothing spectacular. And it's nice to get your coffee early and, you know, ahead of time, you don't have to wait in the line. But and I get one on my birthday. You get one on your birthday with it, right? But the, I, I think whether intentional or not, it's a fantastic CRM program, right? So most retailers, not all of them have a direct relationship with the consumer. And this one allows them to do that. Um, it allows them to participate in the digital, you know, uh, transformation in a way that's really important. But the third thing I think they, they realized that in whether intentional or not was that, uh, people have come to really hate retail banking. In that with interest rates where there are, you get very little in the way of any kind of interest on your checking or savings account. And so, you know, it's actually not a, a bad thing. You may as well store your money on Starbucks, his card, because you're not getting anything better from the bank anyway, right? Mm -hmm. And so their ability to exploit that and to have... Um, this interest-free negative working capital loan that drives loyalty, I just think is a, a, one of the brilliant ways that they've innovated, not just great coffee, but a different way of monetizing um, the business as well too. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about how Blinkist can help your career. Listening to the Marketing Book Podcast says more about you than you may realize. In addition to being physically attractive, Seriously, I've met many of you, and you are a very attractive audience. It also means that you're curious and serious about your business success, and you enjoy learning new things. And your interest in learning also means you're either successful or will be, because all the research indicates that big learners are big earners. Plus, with all the changes happening in marketing and sales, continuous learning is crucial, but there's only so much time and you need to manage it carefully. And unless you're, say, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you may not be set up to read a book every week. That's where Blinkist can really be a time saver and a career booster. Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, is a smartphone app that takes the key insights from over 2,000 best-selling nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes or less. Instead of having to wade through hundreds of pages of a book, spending hours reading each book like I do every week, you can go through two books in 30 minutes. And the books that are on Blinkist are really top-notch, including several books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR by David Merriman Scott, Perennial Seller by Ryan Holiday, Epic Content Marketing by Joe Polizzi, Everybody Writes by Ann Hanley, Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear, and many, many more. It took me hours to read those books, but you can get smart audio summaries of each one in just 15 minutes. Blinkist has been selected as one of the best apps by Forbes, New York Times, and BuzzFeed, amongst others, and it's used by over 1 million people. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast right now, today, to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan when you join. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash marketing book podcast to start your free trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. I recommend getting the yearly plan. That's what I did and getting 20% off because you're going to want to keep it anyway. But don't worry because there's a 30 day money back guarantee. No questions asked. Go to Blinkist.com slash marketing book podcast. And that means you're going to be letting them know that you support the marketing book podcast and that you want that discount. You'll get the free version or 20% off your annual plan. I also have a link to it at marketingbookpodcast.com. It's a great, inexpensive, and very smart investment in your professional development and career. And now back to the show. I think uh, people are understanding a little bit more about this, but uh, let's talk more about how do you uh, go find these people? How, you're in a business, yeah. like the listener is thinking, oh, great, how do I go find my uh, super consumers? And are super consumers only uh, applicable to certain types of businesses, or, or can any business have super consumers? Yeah, I, I've seen them in 
every business that I've ever worked in, and certainly I haven't worked in every business, so it's possible that there are some that exist that don't, but I've yet to find one. And so it, be it, um, you know, the consumer one, I think is the easiest to understand. So B2C, and then even on the, on the business to business side that I've seen it as um, they exist there as well too. So, you know, uh, different people, like I remember there is a heating, ventilation and air conditioning equipment super consumer if you can believe that, <laughs> that wow, interesting. these are yeah these are people who geek out over about the equipment they geek out about the iot on that equipment and you know it's not just about the technology for technology's sake it's for people like a whole foods or a wegmans that saying i want smart valves and humidity sensors so that not just I can keep make sure that the the freezer case isn't frosted over, but I want to make sure that my cold pressed juice is at the right temperature. So I'm not going to kill anybody from a food safety perspective. Right? Interesting. So, yeah. So like there's applications all over the place, which means that there are super consumers everywhere. But the practical way to find these people, and again, it, it ties back to the category creating part is once you find them, your job is to ask them the outrageous question of what would cause you to spend twice as much or pay twice as high of a premium and to figure out what that insight means for you from an innovation on your business or your product side. But the fact finding them is actually a lot easier than people realize. So I, I say, number one, look for your friends, families, and employees is that, um, invariably there are people who are super consumers in your sphere, uh, just that you haven't really thought about in that light and you haven't really realized. And that my, my favorite one is um, I, I did some work for a pork company and there was a bacon super consumer who worked in accounts payables. And I, this, this guy was the skinniest guy, but he, he consumed like two to three pounds of bacon a week. Like he was off the charts crazy with it. And, but he, you know, no one would have ever asked his opinion. Well, he was about, clearly on the bacon diet, Eddie. He was on the bacon diet, right? He was he was well ahead of the uh, the all protein, low carb, right. right? Yeah. Um, but you know, no one would have thought to ask him about anything about consumers or about marketing, about retail activation or innovation. But he was one of the best people to ask, in fact. And that you know, once you kind of flip the lens on, you know, you spend a lot, you care a lot. These aren't things that HR company or departments track, but they're all around you. And what better way to take advantage of people by doing that? And in fact, Royal Canine, uh, which is a prescription pet food company, they actually bring dogs into the interviews so that they can see, you know, regardless of what function you're interviewing for, like how you react to the dog and to make sure that you are actually into pets, right? <laughs> which kind of wow. makes sense if you work for a pet company. Yeah, that's great. Um, so look for them, friends and family. Uh, number two is uh, they leave great digital breadcrumbs, right? And so a super consumer, um, if, if anyone is on Facebook or Twitter tweeting about, you know, pencils as a category, uh, more likely than not, they're probably emotionally engaged in a way that's unusual or different, right? Mm -hmm. And that um, I find that uh, how people, how super spend their time is as telling as how they spend their money. And so if people have signed up um, for you uh, from a email distribution list, or, you know, they, they maybe they paid for your service directly on your website, that's a telltale sign because it's effort to create a login and a password and load a credit card there. So even if you don't have a lot of people on there, you might have the right people there. So digital breadcrumbs are the other way. And then the third one is that it's the the spikes and the valleys in your data is really the part that I get at. And that some people will say, oh, I don't have big data or my data is too complex. And what I really just say is look for the spikes and valleys in your data set and there are probably uh, smoke signals of a super consumer or lack thereof and that if you normalize things on a per capita basis um, or you just look for hey why is it this particular area of the country do are just sales just much much higher when you account for everything else there and that these kind of um uh, it, it kind of highlights another word, uh, words, set of words that I hate in the business languages, you know, average or national average. Like I just despise that metric because it smooths out all the great nooks and crannies of the data and that people don't see kind of what's really going on in that every business believes or wants to be national. And what I found is that they're all hyper-regional to some degree. Yes, that was very interesting. Yeah. And so friends and family, uh, digital breadcrumbs and spikes and valleys in your data. And you'll find that they're actually uh, much closer than you think. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was the you in fuel, which is about understanding consumers, the customers. And I, you know, the more of these books I read and 
I, I, I think that there is this big myth of customer centricity, a lot of lip service being paid to it. Yeah. So when I read this one uh, section from page 105, I circled it and wrote great with two exclamation points, and I'm now going to read it. Just about every company considers itself customer-centric if it uses focus groups, surveys, and ethnographies. But the truth is, very few firms develop deep relationships with their consumers. They don't seriously participate in a two-way dialogue, and they only reach out to consumers on their own terms, on their own turf, and on their own time. It is not a real relationship because it is one way and the companies can't feel empathy for consumers. And I think empathy is one of the most important words in marketing. That was my editorializing there. Yep. But can you talk a bit more in the remaining time about how companies should more effectively understand their consumers? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's um, the... One example that I can tell you from this is from a while back, but it, I think it's a great example of why you have to have a dialogue and it's important to identify a super consumer that you're connected with as a leader and be thinking about them and what they're trying to solve for in their life as you make your decisions. So, um, the former CEO of ConAgra, Mike Harper, uh, this is, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 plus years ago, he had a heart attack and survived and was put on a heart healthy diet and it was like this tastes terrible right and so now of course his health was at play but basically what he did was he directed um one of his directors steve hughes who's now one of the godfathers of food and beverage and um but he told them i want you to create a, a food brand called healthy choice and i want you to make healthy heart healthy food taste better right and that brand um, grew from nothing to one and a half billion dollars in five years. And it's not just because Steve is brilliant, because he, he is and he was, and it's not just because of ConAgra's great excellence, but I truly believe that they knew what they were doing. They were missionaries and not mercenaries, that they were trying to solve for Mike Harper's heart situation and his desire, like basically the humanity of just because you have a heart condition doesn't mean you can't have great tasting food or better tasting food at least, right? Mm -hmm that I just don't think that people have made it personal enough in that um, if you don't have somebody uh, that you are a or connected to as a super consumer and that it's not just as you said a, a read from the book a one-way conversation you're in a real relationship and that you accept the premise that these people buy a lot for a particular reason and it is a logical reason that you can relate to and that if you were in this situation you might actually do the same thing too, right? And that it's this this kind of, um, a lot of brands and businesses are seeking kind of the higher order benefit for, you know, like, oh, my brand stands for this and that. But they rarely go through the hard work of like, um, hey, there are hot dog super consumers, you know, a small portion drive half the category sale. They disproportionately skew towards households with teenage boys. Why is that? It's because households, teenage boys are always starving. They're black holes of eating and hot dogs are actually a 30 second to heat, 30 second to eat, you know, snack. That's all protein, better than chips and whatever, right? But it's not just because of that. It's because these moms and dads have put these teenagers in overscheduled sports and after school activities and and hot dogs are the fuel that keep them going and you ask you keep asking the why 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 it's because these parents are like i want i owe my son or my daughter the best and i want to expose them to as many things as possible because i don't know what they're going to be into in life and in order for them to do that hot dogs are a central part of my strategy right and so you would never really get to at the outset that hot dogs are a way to unleash junior's full potential onto the world <laughs> as a parent but it's part of the journey of understanding like, oh, you know what? If I was in that situation, I would do the same thing too. And that's the reason why I say um, it's important to be connected with a specific super consumer, understand their life's journey. And if you cannot see yourself in their shoes, then you haven't done a good enough job, but that everything you do should be with the mindset of how do I help, you know, Mr. or Mrs., you know, parent of junior help junior achieve his, his or her fullest potential in life. And how can hot dogs enable this crazy busy lifestyle to get there? I mean, th these are the kind of things that uh, allowed the, the ballpark hot dog business to grow 40% and get to number one in five years, which is a remarkable accomplishment given that they had no more resources than, um, because they were kind of star for it at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you mentioned in the book that 
super consumers, it, it, they have multi-purposes. <laughs> they can do so many yeah. things for you. And one of them is that they could become the core mission and purpose of either a startup or, or an existing company. And that expression you just used, I've never heard before, and I'm going to be using it frequently henceforth, which is missionaries, not mercenaries. And if a company thinks of themselves as you know being on a mission of some type rather than just being mercenary, that would uh, there's lots of reasons why that's a good idea. Uh, increased profitability and growth uh, is is amongst them. If readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, I, I think of the uh, Pixar movie Ratatouille, <laughs> the the uh, chef Gusto, the the fictitious apparition that would be around there, and his famous phrase was "Anyone can cook," and for me, it's anyone can grow is, is what I truly believe if you follow this playbook and that I've seen this playbook applied to businesses that had flat to declining growth for years and then they use it and they turn around there. And, and that it, it's an important to me because um, even if what, what I found is that this strategy, it, it's a real kind of challenger, up and coming, scrappy underdog type of strategy. So whether you're an entrepreneur and that you, you're strapped for resources, like this strategy really resonates, or you might be part of a big company, but you're kind of the, you know, Cinderella, ugly stepsister, you know, business or brand that is overlooked and that these, those are my favorite to figure out how to grow actually. And so that, that's part of, um, my, what I really hope that people can take away is that whatever your business is and whatever situation is, you can grow it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a uh, another book uh, where I, that's been on the podcast, the author, Adele Ravella, she wrote Buyer Personas. And I really like the concept of buyer personas, which is basically an archetype for who your um, ideal customer is. And I, I saw some intersections between that and the idea of the super consumer. Obviously, they're two different approaches. But uh, the more that companies understand their customers, uh, the more successful they're going to be. And I think buyer personas can help you do that. I think this uh, concept of super consumers can do it as well. So what books have inspired your work and career? Yeah, you know, it's um, the, the the ones that kind of come to mind as I was thinking about it was um, from a strategy perspective, uh, Grow from the Core by Chris Zook. Is, uh, he's a Bain partner, I believe. Like one of um, my favorite just kind of uh, core nuts and bolts, here's how you grow a business in the healthy manner way. And that book has been very foundational for me, um, I think, in terms of just, uh, you know, it's all about your core business and don't overextend. And, you know, how do you allocate resources? It's more of a traditional kind of, you know, econ 101 type of strategy book. Um, and then uh, Play Bigger by Christopher Lockhead and a couple of other authors. Um, it's it's That one is a book squarely about uh, creating new categories. And I love it. It's, it's a very Silicon Valley centric book, but he talks about how bird's eye created frozen foods. And I think it is important uh, of a read for people to, you know, for what I've called the ultimate growth strategy. So that one was a seminal one for me that um, I had a lot of fun uh, reading uh, as I was writing mine. And then the one that I'll, I'll kind of go old school is but one of my favorite business books, just as entertaining uh, and, and as ed, and education is Barbarians at the Gate. You remember the whole RJR Nabisco, yes, yes. you know, LBO phenomenon in it. That must I, have been I, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It, it, my, my copy, I pulled it out after uh, yeah. as I was prepping for this and it's all dog-eared. But I remember, you know, it reads like a John Grisham novel. Yes, and, I remember reading it years and <laughs> years ago. It was amazing. And it's, it's such a great made into a movie, I think. Made into a movie. Yep, exactly right. And and I, I think to your point, it's it illustrates the mercenary missionary part of the discussion really, really well, right? So many mercenaries out there to try to monetize this business. And you know, so when I think the conclusion of the story, when it's actually put in the hands of somebody who cares about the business, they're actually able to grow it in a way that is meaningful and and kind of all boats boats rise with the tide. And so I, I always take that as a cautionary tale of what not to do and what could be possible with any given business. But those are the three that come to mind. Yeah. And it, again, that brings up the, the carbon monoxide thing about the contempt for the customers. That, as, yes. as, from what I recall from that book, that's, that's exactly how they thought about their customers. Yes. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? 
Yeah, the the one that I was thinking about, uh, same author as one of the Play Bigger guys, this guy by the name of Christopher Lockhead. Um, he is writing a book. I, I think it might be an ebook, so maybe, maybe a little smaller, but it's called Niche Down. And it's all kind of, uh, as I understand it, his how-to for being what he calls a solopreneur, right? Which is like, you know, so uh, Christopher was a three-time Silicon Valley CMO, had been very successful, uh, was a, a, a corporate coach and advisor for a while. And basically, uh, I think it's the premise of, it's, it's a little bit of what I'm doing now, which is that um, you can not only design and create a new category, but you can design and create your own career if you have a certain degree of expertise and you can really be specialized in a way and make it work. And what I've, what I've discovered is that for me, uh, I've been so kind of pleasantly surprised at how much, um, uh, how many assets I have in my way to do what I'm doing now so that I can advise companies, but I don't need a big firm behind me because I think of, you know, LinkedIn as a way of marketing out there and the platforms that I write on HBR of getting my thoughts out there. And so it's this idea, I think he calls it a personal enterprise, which I, I've really kind of been um, fascinated by. So I can't wait to read that one because it's very much what I'm doing. And I think what the future of, as you think about the gig economy is that there'll be more and more personal enterprises than not going forward. Interesting. That brings to mind a, a book that was on the podcast uh, towards the end of 2017 called The Business of Expertise by David mm. C. Baker. And it, he talks, uh, it, it, his was more about, um, well, it was about entrepreneurs who sell expertise. Yep. And it's, it's perfectly applicable to that group. But that niche down sounds like something I would, I would really enjoy. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Yeah, I think you can find me on my website, um, www.eddiewoodgrow.net. Uh, you can certainly, if you, I'm more than happy to connect with people on LinkedIn and Twitter. And LinkedIn has actually the best catalog of all my articles and stuff that I've written about. Um, but otherwise, you know, look for me on HBR. And um, I'm, I'm actually, uh, uh, if you email me at eddie at eddiewoodgrow.net, I can add you to a newsletter that I'm doing, which is basically, um, I'm trying to solicit input from, you know, people who have been fans of the concept and readers and other folks to say, what do you want me to write about next? Because I'm, I'm actually working on a series of articles of um, what I call 20-year tailwinds. So these are the categories that I believe are going to double or be cut in half in the next 20 years and uh, makes for important understanding so that you can place the right bets. Like I, I liken it to the um, Back to the Future 2 book where the sequel where, you know, was it Biff? He, he steals the sports almanac and goes back in time and he's making all this money from it. <laughs> <laughs> who's winning the bets there. So I, I'm trying to replicate that to some degree. That Biff. <laughs> um, well, maybe there's some book that could have something about missionaries, not mercenaries. Boy, that's really stuck in my uh, in my brain. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh, you're also on Twitter at uh, twitter.com. Your, your handle is Eddie Wood Grow. Yep. And uh, I'm marketing book. So if any listeners out there want to say hello to Eddie on Twitter, please do that. We'll include a link to your website as well as uh, we'll include a link to your LinkedIn profile. The name of the book is Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. The author is Eddie Yoon. Eddie, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me, Douglas. I had a blast. And that closes the book on episode 168 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. I also have a link to that special offer at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Alex Goldfain to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Selling Boldly, Applying the New Science of Positive Psychology to Dramatically Increase Your Confidence, Happiness, and Sales. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.